0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Author of the book Searching for Roy Buchanan and Other Brown Posey Releases. Our guest today is Dennis Akinmalasire. He is the author of two books of very different subjects and styles Love, War, and Glory. Spoken Words for All Seasons is a series of short poems and pieces about those subjects. And The Mission to End Slavery is a tale of time travel and is an examination of racism and prejudice. A graduate of Loughborough University, Dennis is a resident of London. Dennis, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm pleased to be here. Well, we uh, first um, came across each other about a year ago, and we were talking about getting you on the program for Love, War, and Glory, but... Uh, we have two to talk about, so maybe this works out even better. Um, I would like to first begin with uh, Love, War, and Glory. Um, there's this really unique set of like little short pieces and poems um, on those subjects and others. Um, when did you get the idea that these may make a book or these might make a good set of uh, like a cycle of stories or something? When did that come to you?
0: Oh, well, it's interesting how that all came about. The thing is, I've been writing for a very long time. And so what happened was in December 2017, I was at home messing around on my computer. and so I came across all my old poems. And I was reading, a, reading through them, all the old poems, the short stories that I did. And I said to myself, you actually never did anything with this. And I said, what have you, and the idea came to me, why don't you turn this into a book? So in January afternoon in the new year, I went and did some research, looked into what it would take to make, make a book. I discovered my um, first publisher, and then after a few conversations, I I decided to go for it. Then about six months later, we ended up with a book on Amazon.
1: And uh, that must have been something. It was uh, when I finally first put my first book, Parasite Girls Together, a long time ago – there was this sort of excitement, but there was also a little trepidation of, oh, are people going to like this? Did you, when you went into it, did, what, did, what were you hoping for with that initial release?
0: Um, I think it was just about a combination of wanting to experience something new, something that would be with you forever, and just trying to see how far, where this would end up. Because hmm. what was interesting that, that my background is a software engineer. People think software engineers are nerdy, aren't artistic, and don't have that creative flair. And one of the things I was hoping I could prove in my first book is just because you're a software engineer or in a so-called like, office of love, it doesn't mean you don't have that creative side to you. Like, I remember when I went to a poetry convention and people saw me coming my suit, and people, one, one comment was, you look too formal to be coming to a poetry mm-hmm. convention. When I was reading from my book, people were like, okay, I see what this guy has.
1: Mhm. Interesting. And how far back do some of these writings go about how well, you know when did you start writing them down and and putting committing them to paper sort of so to speak?
0: Well, some, some of the earlier ones were 2006, 2007, like the man one what the first stories, the man who went to war and won, That was written yes. back in January 2007.
1: Mhm. And that's another interesting thing, too, that is um, in terms of my own writing, beyond my books, I'm more of a songwriter than a poet, and uh, when I write lyrics, they just come out when the moment is right. Uh, how, does it, how has it worked for you throughout your life when you write? Is there, is there just when a moment strikes you, or how do you, how do you approach it?
0: I think it's a combination of writing what comes to me. So especially when it came to poetry, it was about reacting to how I was thinking or how I was feeling at the time. Like the mother, one of the stories I wrote in my first book, The Motherland, that was written after I watched Black Panther. So there are things that are very fresh in my mind. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I look at something such as spending a decade here, that was affecting on being at 10 years at the company I worked at. and was affecting our journey I was t- taking on at that point in time. Others are just about going through painful moments in my life, like the heartbreak one, for instance.
1: Yes. And uh, some of those subjects, uh, the way you write, uh, there's like you talked about heartbreak. You know, we talk about you talked about love, you talked about marriage, and that sort of thing. Um, we've been all of us. It doesn't matter who we are. Uh, we've all been through levels of it. How difficult was it for you to bring those out?
0: I don't think it was. I didn't, personally, I didn't find it that difficult to bring those out because I think the reason why was time, a significant amount of time had passed since some of those incidents had happened. And I was probably mm-hmm. in a good place in my life, or in a very effective place where I was in a great position to be able to talk about some of those things.
1: Mhm. And it it for me it was a very difficult it was a difficult thing for me to write early on even though a part of me is in everything I've done is I didn't feel when I began writing I was really ready to share some of the stuff that went on in my life and yet it just seeped in it just kind of arrived anyway and I thought oh that's me but I thought well I've written it I guess it's best to share it right? <laughs>
0: I think part of the read and why I write, it's a combination of when I wrote Love War and Glory, I felt that these are things that related to people in everyday life. So I felt people could mm-hmm. relate to what I was saying. So mm-hmm. sometimes was what I was often the feedback I was often getting was people could relate or he spoke to some of the themes. There was something in it for everybody. So if you're more about the love side, there was a love section. But you're more more about the everyday battles and hardships that you face in life, there's a war section. And Glory was about, okay, you've overcome all that, and you're getting your end reward. And there's another section mm-hmm. called Life Stories that was a whole set of different themes that were close to me.
1: Yeah. And that was the thing, like in the war section, there was a focus, I felt from reading them, not what people would take at face value, but it seemed more like at times the battle within. If, if that's what kind of struck me, I think. Am I, am I right in that direction?
0: I have a feeling that the man who went to war and won was definitely a case in public. Sometimes the biggest challenge you face in life can be yourself. Mm-hmm. So I think there were elements of that coming through a lot of my stories.
1: It does seem that way. There's a lot of practical advice. Interesting one was dealing, like there was ones dealing with anger, dealing with the ego, and I think as we get older, it gets a little better, that a little easier to do that. But um, And I guess the main thing is the experiences you have seem to translate to your work with the more difficult or the emotional ones like anger, say, or or having your ego sort of not really punctured, but maybe pushed a little bit or nudged. When those come to you, does it? what's your reaction to it? Like, say, from the experience, then you get to the writing process. What is the in-between like, or is there one for you?
0: I think my natural nature when it comes to life and things in general is to go on the attack and um, just be on the front foot with things. And I think some of the poems I wrote were with that mindset in place. But there have been times in my life where I've had significant setbacks. And it's been like, okay, you're at the bottom, well, how would you pull yourself up again? I, I was mm-hmm. fortunate that in certain situations I had a lot of good people around me and they were able to help me get on the wagon, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I think uh, it's a case of figuring out what works for you because the methodology that works for me that may not work for another person. Everyone has their own buttons. Everyone's motivated by different things. Everyone has their own trigger points. And I think part Mm -hmm. of growing up is being able to understand what those trigger points are. Because once you can, because you can't train people exactly the same way. So part of the Mm -hmm. challenge in terms of overthrowing is figuring out, well, what makes you tick? How do you get the best out of yourself? Once you know what makes you tick, then you can respond to that and know how to manage certain situations better.
1: Yes, very very practical. And you you talked also as we moved into the glory section. um, Yes, like you say, getting your reward—you you you know, get what you put in, kind of thing. I was—you you you mentioned the man with the Midas touch. That was really interesting to read. I I remember reading it over more than once and really thinking about it. And it was like, I think we all know somebody in that life who just seems to be able to do that. was there one person you knew, or was there more than one that goes into these kinds of characters, like like this man? Was there was there one for you?
0: Um me say from the minor stuff, There've been a lot of people that I've admired, respected, or feel like they've got it going on for certain mm-hmm. skills or set areas of life that I feel they're able to do well. I would say in terms, the other, I tell you the one story, one poem that I didn't write where there was maybe one or two people was the greatest ever. When I wrote that mm-hmm. one, I was thinking of who I felt were some of the greatest people in their fields. People like Pete Sampras and Tennis, Roger Federer, Pele, mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali. So when I was describing the great the greatest of all time, I really talk, it was mainly talking about an a almigration of all of those three all of those three or four different people who I felt were at the top of the game for a lengthy period of time. So I would say that was the one where it was almost like there were one or two, there were three or four different people in my mind.
1: Mm-hmm. And those are certainly people anybody would look at as heroes or look at as role models, perhaps. Um, the the one thing I thought of is, when I when I think of that, I think of certain people as well uh, when I go to concerts and I see certain musicians, I mean you see professionals who maybe haven 't played all their lives, but they just have that talent and they have the drive to make every note work, every note count. I think of certain people and i 've seen it in sports as well i go to you know when you go to games or or you watch them on television it 's like you just see them and you 're like, they make this look so easy and You just have to be reminded of, think of the work they put in to get to that.
0: Sometimes when it comes to successful people, people sometimes only see the end result. People look at me and they say, yeah, you're a homeowner, you're you're driving now, you're a vice president in your firm. But people forget that maybe six, seven years ago, I was nowhere near close to some of those things. Yeah. Like people sometimes don't see the journey, they only see the end result. So I feel like, if you look at any successful person, regardless of what field they're in, every one of them's had a journey. They didn't wake up unless you were born rich or whatever. They mm-hmm. didn't just suddenly wake up and they're in that position. Everyone has to go through their own journey to get to where they want to be in life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's um, the it's thing we don't see. And that's – I think that's that was part of the the tale was that uh, you don't see what these people did. You don't see how much effort they put into things, and it's important to remember that. And it's sort of like put your own you, – you have to put yourself back into your own shoes sometimes because it's like you think how many years have you done a certain job. And and that's the thing that for me too. I mean there were different – throughout my broadcasting career, I've been in it – over 35 years and there were periods where well I knew for the first several years of my life I wasn't going to be known at all and it was very difficult to explain to my family that you know when they would say well are you making you're what kind of you're not making much money you know you know you're working for a radio station nobody's ever heard of you're in a very small market and I said well this is how you do it you pay your dues you go a long time without being well known, and I've never been known. But it didn't matter because I was doing what I loved doing, and I've seen it's, it's just rises and falls in your career, you know. It's it, but you, are you, I guess for me, it's like, are you satisfied so far, and are you ready to to grow and go to the next thing? And that's what I try to ask myself: is okay, are you ready for the next step, right?
0: I'm trying to think of the best way to answer that. So I feel like everyone has to pay their dues or pay their time. Because you don't suddenly become a superstar. You've also, to get to the top of any industry, you've got to learn your field. Let's say you have just started and we put you in front of maybe the biggest radio station in America or the biggest station in South Europe. If you were the first it, you would struggle. You wouldn't be ready. So that's why you need to prove yourself that a smaller, on a smaller audience. Then eventually yep. you grow and grow, you get more comfortable, you learn your skills, and then eventually you're ready for a bigger platform. Because when you get more responsibility, you don't want to be in a situation whereby you get what you want to do and you don't know what to do. You want to be in a situation where actually you know how to handle it. Like, I remember when I made vice president in my firm back in 2015. And my role was mm-hmm. changing that whole year. And then two of my former people who were in my position before left the firm, suddenly I was just thrust into it. And that was an interesting situation because it was a break of the base on the global world, something I'd never really done before. And I really had to learn off my feet. It took maybe a few months before I really felt like this was my seat, this was my position. But eventually, there were certain leaders that took place, and that's when I felt like I took command of this role. And then it was like, this is my yard and this is my territory now. Sometimes you do need to feel your way and grow into a role before you feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes when you're trying to stop in life, it doesn't matter what field it is, there's always going to be that initial uncomfort. Un- but when you get over that, that's when you can really start to excel.
1: Yeah. And... uh yeah, I think that's it. It's it's sometimes that happens. You get put into a situation, and you draw, you draw on what you know. You draw on your own experience, and you hope that you can adapt to that. And I've, I think we've all been through it. It's like you, you come in with you know suddenly you've got a job that you don't know anything about. But it's like I've always found the same situation when I change. You know, when I go to another station or I go to a different, I go to a different studio, and there's a completely different setup. But it's like okay you know enough you know enough to know how to get started and you can fall back in your experience on what makes what's what's going to make this project work what's what's going to make it sound right and how are we going to set the mics up and what are we going to do with the you know wh- how are we going to account for this and yeah it's that's what it is so it's it's like it, this is you know love War, and glory is also to me just like it you know it's not exactly a how to but it certainly gives a few, what is it, Uh, I'm trying to find the right words. Um, It's almost like a little guide. It's almost like a nice little set of guidelines that say, you don't have to do it just like this, but you have something here, right? Say that again, please,
0: the line cut for a moment
1: there. Sorry. Um, The book is kind of like a set of guidelines, isn't it? Like a bit of help.
0: I would describe love, world, glory as self-reflection of certain things that we all go through in life. I try to do it in a manner that's that it's meaningful. Can maybe to a certain degree, there's a little bit of a help guide for it, but it's more just about being able to relate one experiences, how maybe I overcame certain things. Just trying to think what could
1: have worked for you. Mm-hmm. And I have one other question to ask about this before we move on. I watched a video of you um, giving a reading, and someone was shooting from the audience, and I was very interested in how you spoke and how you presented yourself, and what kind of reactions do you get when you read live? I just did a reading recently and played some music myself from my, my current book, and I try never to look too much at the audience, but I always sort of scan a little bit and see the reaction. Are they getting it? Are they feeling it? What kind of reactions do you get? Overwhelmingly, when
0: I read out various things, people have been very positive. But I think what's interesting is what they respond to. Because depending on the audience, they may want different things. Like the sound my audience... So like there's one poetry event I did in Womford, which is basically 10 minutes from where I live. They were all responding to glory, but there was a poetry mm-hmm. event I went to, and they wanted love, where other people were more interested in the life stories because of how it relates to certain things that happened in their life. So what I've found is that, depending on the audience, depending on what the more the audience is in the mood for, that can have an influence, not only in terms of reaction, but what you're getting the most reaction out of, if that
1: makes any sense. Yes, yes, it does. Our guest today is Dennis Akimolisire. He is the author of two books of uh, love, war, and glory, spoken words for all seasons. And I want to move now into your latest work. The Mission to End Slavery. Now, I write about time travel myself, so I was very intrigued immediately. Um, you asked the question, sort of as a subtitle, what if slavery never existed? Tell us about what brought you to this project. What brought you in this direction?
0: Oh, it's interesting. Um, around about the start of 2019, I was in the mood to write a second book, partly because there were certain things going on one of but. I wanted to take a crack at fiction because as much as I was proud of Love, War and Glory, I felt that for whatever reason, poetry can be a very hard sell, and it's very difficult to get people into poetry. So if you look at Amazon, if you look at the top 20 books, 18 of them are fiction, so there was that in mind in terms of being able to reach a wider variety of people. But then when I started to think about it, I said, well, what type of fiction do you want to write about? And at the time, I'd read a book called Why I No Longer Talk to White People About Race, and that got me thinking. It got me thinking about slavery and the impact it had on the world. And I said to mm-hmm. myself, everyone talked about slavery, but no one's ever asked the question, well, what if slavery didn't exist? Mm-hmm. What about if all the key things that made slavery happen didn't occur? And then what mm-hmm. about if my character basically had the ability to go back in time and stop the things from happening? And that's when the story was born. And, and I said, let's call it a mission. That's when the title, The Mission to End Slavery, came about. The way I describe Mission to End Slavery is, the way to think of it is, you've got, it's really slavery, action, adventure, and sci-fi to tell the ultimate what-if story. That's the way I've described the book.
1: Hmm. Well, tell us about our protagonist, Femi. Who is he? What's, what is he? What's he like, and how did he come about?
0: So, Femi, Adebayo, He's basically a regular East London kid, and he's from a he's from he's Nigerian, from a Yoruba background. And the way he's grown up, he's always felt like he's had to fight against the system. and thinks because he's black. He's had to fight hard, or work twice as hard just to be better than everyone else, just to give himself a chance. Then one mm-hmm. time after a conversation in a barber shop when they were arguing over reason why society is in the state today, he meets someone called Mr De- he meets someone called Mr Diggity, a mysterious being who offers him something seemingly impossible. He offers him the opportunity to go back in time to change events that led to slavery. He Femi dismisses him at first, but then it happens in his life and then he took Mr Diggity on his offer. And then it's a journey, he starts on a journey where he goes back to periods of time, ways from 15th century West Africa, the 18th century a rebellion in 1800 yeah. in West Virginia. He goes back to Egypt to when Cleopatra and the Romans were about. He goes back to when slave ships. And it's really just that journey in time to see some of the key events that made slavery happen in and thinking about what kind of world are we live in if those things didn't occur. It's a journey of self discovery because when he starts off, he's, a, he's really a kid. With no chance mm-hmm. And to take a mission like this You have to really bring yourself up To be a warrior So I almost thought back to One of my favourite films, Batman Begins Because when Bruce Wayne started on his journey He mm-hmm. started out With a mission and a purpose But he, didn't, he, needed the, he needed Guidance, he needed tools He needed to basically channel himself into a weapon And when, he, when, Femi, when he, Femi goes on his first mission To West Africa the tribe that takes him in, they're basically training him to be that and to teach him. basically they basically had to get the tools he was going to need to be successful in his mission. And that's why when he first starts, he sends him a year before some of the key events were happening to give him the time to learn the skills that he would need to be a success. And then through that, you see him growing as a warrior, as a leader, and being able to lead people into battle, and being able to, you know, being a man to make the difference in the end.
1: Okay, now one thing I must ask: um, we need to ask about you know the current tensions in the UK, but also here in the United States when it comes to race. Those are feeding into Femi's frustration with what he's seeing. Um, how much of it do you have you experienced? Do you see because there's because when Femi is talking with his friends, you, you just feel this frustration. You just feel this uh, anger that he has. And I think we've all felt at a time where, you know, we just feel like we're not getting anywhere. Um, how how closely have you seen it? How closely have you felt it? Because it seems to just fit. It fits into the book very nicely. But uh, what do you see? What is your perspective on what you see for race relations and the and the, and the concerns right now? Honestly,
0: you would think in this day and age, slavery, I mean racism rather, would no longer be an issue. But there's all right. sorts of life whereby, unfortunately, black people are still being let down. Black people are still not getting a fair crack of the rip. I'm going to give right. you an example. If I look at a sport close to my heart, football or in, also in the United States of soccer, there are certain yep. like, top players, top black players who, when they want to start off in management, they're having to start at team such as McField, et etc. Whereas other people, like, um, I don't really want to mention the names, that have not had a coaching career, have barely done their badges, suddenly they're being given top jobs and being given the ability to access all sorts of things. And it's like, why is that? Mm hmm. And there are certain yeah. situations, certain sports, where they only trust you so far, but at the moment they feel you're not needed, they'll cast you out like a... You get cast out like a leper.
1: Yeah.
0: And there are a few examples that I gave in my book.
1: Yeah. Well, that's a that's a matter here in sports in this country, is we have... in You, you pick any sport. Some are a little better about it than others, but you see so few African-Americans... Or non-whites as, say, general managers of teams. You know, you're not. You 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 know, we've like the National Football League's gotten a little better at having African-American head coaches, and you're seeing more coaches. It, it, it seems like it's finally starting to change a little bit. But I I, I know where I see where you're going. You feel like you, you feel like certain guys all of a sudden they're managing teams, and I I could name a few too, but I don't know if I would be fair or not completely. But yeah, it's the same thing. It's like there's certain guys that just suddenly become, "Oh, you know, he's retired, so we're going to make him a coach." And it's like, "Okay, he probably can coach. He probably has some skills. He probably can impart experience, but you feel like why that guy, right?
0: trying to think how to process that I think the only way we can really solve racism is we need to see human beings or what they are and judging by their merits not because they cut out their skin and just give everyone an equal fair opportunity
1: Mm
0: -hmm. so that's one angle of it and just going back to you know there are things that have happened whereby I'm probably going to be touching a sensitive subject here but There are certain nations out there, like Africa, Mm -hmm. where we've been left behind because of certain things that happened in the Western world, and we're still suffering and paying catch-up. And we're not talking about one or two years. We're talking about almost hundreds of years catch-up in certain circumstances.
1: Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and it's like the steps, you know, it feels like the steps are coming forward, but they're slow. Like, and I agree. You know, it's like I want to see that the same way. Is I mean, it was Martin Luther King who said that here: of you know, not don't judge him, don't judge people by their skin color, judge them by their character, judge them by, by their content. And you hope for that.
0: I'm not thinking one day we, we, we will hopefully get there, but it may come when we're no longer around.
1: Well, that's the thing of, and, and Dr. King said that too. He said, "I may not get to the mountain with you." And uh, I write about it in *Searching for Roy Buchanan*. Uh, I have a brief area of, of examination of racism when our hero and her brothers travel to the Mississippi Delta in the 1930s, and they experience racism, or they experience what their friends are dealing with. And it is an elderly character who just says, "It won't happen in my lifetime, but one of these days, it will." And, you know, she keeps the optimism and the positivity that one day it'll happen. And it's like, sadly, I won't be here to watch it, but I know it'll happen. You want to hope for that.
0: Sometimes it's in life, it's about making your mark. But sometimes that mark or sometimes your impact won't necessarily be mm-hmm. felt by your lifetime. It might be felt by the people that come after you. Like, if I at say someone like a Jesse Owens, when he won the, mm-hmm. won the four gold medals in the 1956 Olympics and basically yes. went and, you know, stuck it to Hitler, that laid the mm-hmm. foundation for other black athletes to come through and really start showcasing themselves. Because then, if you go to the 19, in 1984 Olympics, Carl Lewis went and did the same thing. Whereas if Jesse mm-hmm. Owens hadn't paved the way for him to do that, Carl Lewis wouldn't have done it.
1: Exactly. Sometimes it just exactly. takes
0: one person to make a breakthrough in a particular field. And others think, if that person can do it, then so can I.
1: Right, right. To get back to your book, you mentioned Mr. Diggity. Who is this man, really, and what does he represent in the book?
0: Mr. Diggity is he's one partner men- mentor. One part, a counter-argument, because with every argument that Femi presents, Mr. Diggity often presents a counter-argument. Like, Femi often talks about the challenges that are facing people from Black origin. Mr. Diggity talks about people from Asia, people from other parts of the world that have also suffered and been affected by slavery. And he challenges how come it's not held them back in certain instances, but why are black people being held up? So it does raise some interesting questions. And the other times he acts as a guide, because there are times when Femi might be in a dangerous situation. Mr. Dixie will show up to check in on him, to basically give him advice and see how he's approaching things, and also remind him of the mission and the terms of their agreement. I don't want to spoil it, but at some glance, there's a certain chapter when Femi is considering making, making a certain decision, Mr. Tudy warns him, so says, hang on a minute. You are at this coast to finishing a mission. yet yeah, now you want to go and diverge. So he represented interest in foil for me to bounce off.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, you chose some specific in, in moments in history, and um, I confess I didn't know much about this one. Uh, the first one where... Uh, Femi goes to Nigeria in the 15th century and it's Chief Oko's battle against colonization. Um, can you give us a little bit of a – what kind of research did you have to do for these different uh, different scenarios? And this one in particular was fascinating to me.
0: I wanted to go and explore parts of slavery and parts and periods that no one ever heard of or things you don't necessarily get taught in school. Like mm-hmm. you go back to the 50th century – when there was an evasion by the Portuguese, they came in, took a cross, and they started a slave trade in West Africa that led to a lot of things happening in terms of slavery from Africa. That's something that doesn't really get discussed. And I thought there was an interesting story, story especially in terms of how the Yoruba tribe lived, especially in terms of how they prepared for themselves. So I felt that like there'd be some interesting story points. So that was the reason why I picked that one. Now, Turner, one of the greatest slave rebellion, of slave rebels was very famous. Mm-hmm. Again, it was a story in an area that I felt wasn't really explored. Using the Friedenburg slave ship, because everyone knows they were a slave ship, but no one's ever talked about in detail in terms of, all well, what was it like to be a slave on those ships? And some of the horrors yes. that people went through. And the chapter I think people found really interesting was, going back to the Roman Empire, because we all learn about the Roman Empire at school, at least that's the case in the UK. But a lot of the origins of slavery were were in the Roman Empire. And if you look at how people like Julius Caesar ran and governed themselves, they laid, he laid the foundation for some of the other despicable leaders that we've had to, unfortunately, come across in mankind's time. People like Adolf Hitler, Sterling, some really nasty people that were just out to base the... Get power at any cost And I think mm-hmm. Julius Caesar the Roman Empire Was the, home, the trigger point for a lot of that And what I also found During that period, the Roman Empire Took over a lot of people There was only one empire that stood up Against them, and that was the Cush, the Cush Kingdom And I mm-hmm. found that a very interesting challenge Because it was almost like Cush Kingdom was able to Put them to a standstill But what after went further And took out the Roman Empire that was that was an interesting play on what happened in history and how that could have a ripple effect
1: on time going forward. Mm-hmm. Well, let's not give away the ending. I will say this, though. You took us to these places, and you have opened the door. I think we talked about it beforehand. Uh, this looks like a series, by the way. You've let it hang a little bit. Uh, how far along... Um, what, kind of, what do you envision for a series? How, how, uh, how much more are we going to learn about Femi and his journey?
0: I see this as a two-parter. So I feel mm-hmm. like this book is the first half. The second book, I think, is going to be the one that completes this story. So the first book is really what if slavery didn't exist,
1: didn't exist.
0: I won't give away the title of the second book, but the second book is going to be – the theme will be what could be worse than slavery. Mm. So it deals with the outcome of some of Femi's actions And you have to deal with the new And Femi has to deal with the new world Hmm
1: this is, This just sounds like it it has such elements of time travel, but it has elements of science fiction and 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 yet you've also given us a history lesson, so it's certainly well done and uh i I am interested in what will happen in part two for certain um we are talking with Dennis Akin who has written uh we're talking right now about his second book, the most recent The Mission to End Slavery and uh part two um how are you coming along with that and can we when when do you think we're going to see that?
0: I have a feeling that part two is like a few years away, partly because I'm getting married this year in May, and oh, are some sort of things i no, thank you. And there's also other things that I need to do with my life at this point in time. At the Mm -hmm. moment, I'm trying to really promote Book 2, but it's been so because my focus has been on the upcoming wedding. I expect to push a lot more with it after the wedding. Right. And then probably in terms of when Part 2 will come, I think the earliest will be at some point in 2022 or maybe late
1: 2021, depending on the time.
0: And how life is at
1: that point in time all right, very cool. well, in the time we have left us, um I'd like to ask a little about your personal history. Maybe you could tell us about your upbringing, and I've always found that the that the how we grew up early in life certainly shapes it shapes our life, but it also shapes so many of the things that we do tell us about Tell us about your growing up life, where when and all that. So, okay, so I was born
0: in London, I'm from, my origin is Nigeria, mm-hmm. and I grew up in East London, spent some time in Kent, So, was being, when I was living with my foster parents at the time, came back to London for full-time education when I was secondary school, mm-hmm. went to Nigeria when I was quite little, so I came back when I was about four or five, didn't get the opportunity to go again until 2002. They went back in in 2010 and 2015. I would say it's been an interesting upbringing. Especially if you look like at the area where I'm from, Newham, which is known as one of the poorest boroughs in London. So there's always a certain mm. stigma against, attached to it. And I feel like I've been lucky because even though there've been challenges with our family, and sometimes we've had to go. We've had to go and make figure out our own way sometimes. I feel like I've been lucky that I've always had good people by my side. I've had my mum, my sisters, very good friends. I've had like, some of my friends. A lot of, half most of my friends, I mean, half of them are from my school days. So I've known them for more than 20 years. Mm-hmm. So I feel like what helps me is be it from my school days when I went to sixth from university work. When I've travelled around the world, I feel like I've always met good people, developed, given me an experience, helped shape my thinking and shape my life going forwards. And now I'm probably at a point in time where I can probably give some of that back. Mm-hmm. It's always it's important to help out the next generation.
1: That's cool. In terms of. Um what you like to read, what kind of, what were the people around you reading? What what struck you early on in life for, for authors or for books, that kind of thing? When I was
0: younger, I used to like reading the Roald Dahl books. So things like Fantastic Mr. Fox. I like mm-hmm. the iRobot series of stories by Asimov. Hmm. Things like Merchant of Venice were good to read. I found it, I found Charlotte to be a very, interesting character. Then I went for a period maybe because I was going to university studying where I po- probably wrote a lot more textual, but especially in relation to my field, which is computer science. Mm-hmm. I think what's influenced me more in terms of my writing isn't necessarily the books I read as such. It's been more like my other interests because I like science fiction aside where they are my favourite type of films. So the films I enjoy are things such as The Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. Batman Begins, Blade Runner, Star Wars, Black Panther Left Influence, Captain I liked Captain America, The Winter right. Soldier, Indiana mm-hmm. Jones, what else in terms of the really the colour purple? And I feel like the emotions that I felt those films evoked. That was what I tried to capture in my book, especially in the mission to end slavery.
1: Mhm. Yes, and that's very true, too. Films do the same thing. Music has done the same thing for me, is that, because um, I just I just grew up around, I, I grew up in the 60s, so I grew up around when the Beatles were, were still incredibly popular, the Rolling Stones were hitting, and that's what my brothers listened to, so I got to hear all that. and Music always just seemed to work for me, and yes, film I agree with as well. Certain ones would get me, but I guess for me music was just the, the, the prime motivator, and it, weaves its way in and out of my writing and it's what prompted me to pick up a guitar years ago when i was trying to look at i'm looking at all the poetry i'd written i'm thinking these are actually songs aren't they and i just thought yeah let's see if we can make something out of them so that's what really led me that led me into writing when i uh, i would listen to music and it was like um I find it remarkable that a three minute or four minute song sometimes would inspire something in me and say, there is a story that isn't being told or I have one and it fits. And it's fascinating how that happens.
0: (laughs) I think with books, so like well-written books are like an art form. Books can give you the ability to express your thoughts and express your creativity Because the thing Mm -hmm. is, with a film, you can see it. But with a book, it's harder because you've really got to be really descriptive in terms of communicating your thought process in terms of what you want people to hear from your story. So that's really powerful.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And I feel like the best authors are the ones, be it whether you're writing a fiction book or a poetry book, they're the ones who are able to really bring the reader with you on that journey into your world and have them really
1: rooting for the characters
0: in question.
1: If that makes any sense. It sure does. It does. And um, do you see – I guess one of the last questions I have before I I go to this is um, do you see a mission for your writing – Um, in a bigger picture? Like, what do you, is it, maybe it's answering the question, how do you want to be remembered or how do you want, or how do you want your writing to be remembered?
0: So I think the thing that every author wants, so every, on one degree, everyone wants to be the next Stephen King, J.K. Rowling, really famous, of millions of books, but especially yep. in today's market, obviously it's very hard to do that. It'd be nice to get a return on books, but I think the real thing that should be driving Northfield is if every for every person that reads your book, if they're able to say yes, they've understood the story, they've understood what you're getting at it. It's not necessarily right, the word, but it's about are you connecting with what or where they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. I feel like if every book, for every book of life, for every person that reads it, if they come back and say to me, "Yes, I identify what, where you're coming from. I understand the points you're trying to make. Your points resonate with me," that is probably the biggest reward I could get. Everything else, in terms of what happens, could be a bonus. Like I could easily see the Mister N. Slavery one day being the sort of book that ends up in a film. It has that potential.
1: Well, then, how can we find uh, your books, and how do we find you?
0: Good question. So my website is www.akinsabooks.co.uk. My books are available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones. If you Google the Mr. Enslavery, you'll find it. I also have an agreement, for those of you that which is probably not going to be as relevant here, but I also had an agreement with new Beacon Books—they're going to be selling my book. They're in the process of ordering some copies, so they're shopping off London. And actually, down the road, there'll be more established that pick up my book. I'm available on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so I am reachable by those means as well.
1: All right. Well, this has been uh, a great conversation. Thank you, Dennis, for your time, and uh, well, congrats again on your marriage and best of luck to you. Thank you. Our guest has been Dennis Akinmolaseire. He is the author of *Love, War, and Glory*, *Spoken Words for All Seasons*, and *The Mission to End Slavery* on Akinster Books. This is your host Tori Gates, author of the current Brown Posey Press release *Searching for Roy Buchanan*, as well as *A Moment in the Sun* and *Live from the Cafe*. This is the Book Speak Network.